Welcome to The Final Word, a Bible teaching ministry with pastor, teacher, and author Jim Andrews. The Final Word is grounded on the invincible conviction that what the Bible teaches, God teaches. And that is the last word. On this program, truth still matters. The Bible is in, Babel is out. The Final Word is funded by listeners like you. Should you want to partner with us or want other information about the program, please go to our website at thefinalwordradio.com. There you'll find archives so you can listen to any program you may have missed. Visit us on our social media platforms at The Final Word Radio and write us a note. We love hearing from our listeners. We'll provide other contact information at the end of the program, so have your pen ready. And now Jim Andrews continues his current study of God's Word. Good day, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for joining us again on The Final Word. Before I launch today's exposition, I want to make our listening audience aware of some articles that I have written that you might be interested in and tell you how to access them. If you will go to jimandrewsbooks.com, that's one word, jimandrewsbooks.com, you will find there a tab that says Articles. You will discover there are some articles that I've produced over the years that you may find interesting and helpful. I'm not a regular blogger, but when things pop up on my radar that I feel I would like to address in a thoughtful way, I will sometimes produce a longer article. So I'm just happy to share them with you for whatever benefit they may have. We continue our exposition of the Epistle to the Hebrews. Some of these Hebrew Christians were a little shaky in their faith. That's the reason the epistle was written. They failed to appreciate the vast, vast superiority of everything they had in Jesus Christ. They were toying with the idea of turning back into traditional Judaism. They did not really get it, at least some of them. And the writer is trying to impress upon them the superiority of everything that we believers have in the Lord Jesus Christ. Interspersed with his expositions and his appeals are various warnings not to turn back from the gospel which they have heard and which they have believed. As a matter of fact, he's just said, I really don't think you're going to go that way. Nevertheless, it is part of the Spirit's strategy to use warnings to draw us out of our slumber. The writer had said in verse 4, In the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, and all those things were descriptors of these Hebrew Christians, and then have fallen away, you don't want to go there. It's impossible. It's impossible to renew them unto repentance. Why? Since they crucify to themselves the Son of God and they put him to open shame. For the ground that drinks the rain, which often falls upon it, and brings forth vegetation useful to those for whose sake it is tilled, it receives a blessing from God. But if that ground yields thorns and thistles, it is worthless and close to being cursed, and it ends up being burned. But, beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you, the things that accompany salvation, though we are speaking in this way. So let's summarize what I believe is the author's point. We will not deal again with alternative explanations, which we have set aside for reasons that you have already heard. In the words of F.F. F. Bruce, the great British scholar, passed away a few years ago, apostasy is irremediable. The author emphasizes that continuance in the faith is the test 
of its reality, the reality of that faith. There is a temporary faith. Jesus in the parable of the sower made that abundantly clear, and we should never forget that. These are not people who get saved and then get lost. These are people who faith was not generated by the Spirit of God, but by other influences. The fact is that a real faith perseveres to the end. So Bruce adds in this passage, The writer to the Hebrews is not contradicting the truth of the perseverance of the saints. That is, that true saints persist in their faith to the end. But, Bruce says, the writer is stating a practical truth. That truth has verified itself repeatedly in the history and the experience of the visible church. The plain fact is, this is my interpretation, that those who have once owned Christ, people who have experienced in an intimate way the light of the truth, like Judas, for example, people who have shared in the presence and in the powers of the Holy Spirit, by that I mean they've seen changed lives, they've seen healings, they've seen clear answers to prayer, they've shared in all of this up close and personal. In a figure of speech, they have tasted and at one time rejoiced in the good word of God and so forth. Well, if people like that, and Judas is a type, if they turn their backs on all that exposure, it's like one staring straight into the light of the sun. They just go blind thereafter, and as a result are so hardened, they're so callous, like Pharaoh of old, like Simon Magnus, that they are forever beyond the self-imposed limits of God's mercy. It's impossible in such cases to reach them or to renew them again to repentance. They won't repent because they can't. The horror of and the basis of judgment upon such apostasy is expressed in verse 6 to review. Since they crucify to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. In short, those who reject Christ, having owned him, and having in the midst of the church and in the midst of the work experienced so much of his light, his presence, and his power, they are irretrievable to the faith because they have, in effect, sinned against the Holy Spirit. They've sinned against clear light. They have preferred darkness and aligned themselves with it. In doing so, they have to all intents and purposes replicated the sin of the enemies of the Lord Jesus, who crucified him on the cross and humiliated the Son of God. Spiritually and functionally, this is the gravity of such a step of apostasy in the eyes of God. Though the author does not say it, his message is clear. This would be an utter calamity to your soul. Don't go there, don't back away from Christ, and be ruined forever. In verses 7 and 8, the author resorts to an agrarian analogy to put things in perspective. By analogy, the author says there are two types of spiritual soil. One type joyfully absorbs the blessed water that falls from heaven and returns fruit to sustain the farmer who tilled it. This soil is the type that enjoys God's blessing. There's another type of soil, the unproductive kind. Water falls on it. It yields nothing good or useful, just thorns and thistles. Such ground is considered worthless, virtually cursed, and, as one would naturally 
expect. Such ground is eventually burned, of course, a figure of judgment. To have received much from God in the way of spiritual tillage and water and yet turn around and reject Christ, as they would do if they were to take that fatal step, that would be the functional equivalent of ground bringing forth thorns and thistles. That would be to make oneself a reject, one who does not pass the test in God's eyes, and therefore under a curse and destined to be consumed in judgment. As sobering and threatening as that prospect is, the author hastens to assure his readers that to tell the truth, I do not see you in that picture. But he was compelled to warn them. Beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you, things that accompany salvation. So the writer balances sober warning with strong encouragement, and the Spirit of God invested both the warning and the encouragement to a salutary effect. Time and again, as I've read the Word of God, I can tell you both the positive and the negative have a wholesome effect on me. They sober me when I get careless and a bit presumptuous. They summon me, the warnings, to get my act together or suffer the consequences. And they stimulate me by encouraging and inspiring me when at times I'm too hard on myself and fail to appreciate enough the grace and the mercy of our loving God. As someone once said, and some of you who listen regularly have heard me say a number of times, the task of the preacher is to comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comfortable. That's that balance. And that's what the Word of God does regularly. We need both. We need to be comforted, and sometimes we need to be afflicted when we're too presumptuous to keep our spiritual boat on even keel. He says in verse 9, I'm convinced of better things concerning you and things that accompany salvation, though we are speaking in this way. The author means to say, for all his disappointment in their spiritual sluggishness, his disappointment in their lack of progress in Christian maturity, lack of progress in faith that one would naturally expect by this time and enable them to be teachers, he still is persuaded, even though he's just spoken to them, as potential apostates, that the fruits that attend the experience of salvation in his mind testify to their genuineness. And he notes in verse 10 that God is not unjust so as to forget your work and love which in the past you have shown toward his name. Now observe here in verse 10 what works testify to their zeal, to their faith in behalf of his name. He mentions having ministered in the past, and you're still ministering to the saints. This ministry to the saints he offers in evidence as a sign that at bottom they love God. This is in accordance with Jesus' words in Matthew 25. There the Lord so identifies with his people that he says that inasmuch as you've done it, good or bad, unto one of these my brethren. He's not talking about people in general. He's talking about his brethren. As far as I'm concerned, Jesus said in Matthew 25, you did it unto me. And also, Jesus said in Matthew that whoever shall give one of his prophets a cup of water, just because that person is a prophet of God, that is, do it in the name of the one he represents, well, that person shall receive a prophet's reward. That's because the Lord considers the service to his servants as rendered to him. 
You will further note that our author removed their good works from the sphere of merely humanitarian works or altruism. He does that by saying what they did for the saints was motivated by the love which you have for his name. For God is not unjust to forget your work and the love which you've shown toward his name. That's not humanitarianism. That's not altruism. This is good work done out of faith in the name of the Lord. You've ministered and are still ministering to the saints in his name. In other words, he's encouraged as he looks back at their spiritual history. He sees what they've done, and they've done a lot in the name of Christ. They did it for Christ's sake. That inspiration of their works, to the writer's mind, testifies to the presence of things in them that accompany salvation. It is these fruits that persuade him that at bottom, whatever their present deficiencies, and there are some serious ones, They are for real. They're animated by the Holy Spirit. Now, his comment about their love for God and service to the saints is a bit colorless and dehydrated, as stated here. And unless we look ahead to chapter 10, verse 32, we may not appreciate the radical nature of it. So let me just jump ahead for a moment to Hebrews 10.32. There the author recalls about these same people, the former days, when, after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations. In other words, they had already endured some persecution in the name of the Lord. That speaks well for them. And partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners. You accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession than your earthly property and an abiding one versus their temporal possession. Now here I need to say something by way of application. Folks, God did not call any of us to be judges. He called us to be servants. Even so, the Lord did authorize and even admonish us to be fruit inspectors, if you please. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus warns about false prophets and their sign. We cannot say for certain who are the Lord's, unless people deny him, but we can say oftentimes what works are the fruits of the Spirit and what are not. For example, look at Galatians chapter 5, where Paul describes the fruits of the flesh and the fruits of the Spirit. And James chapter 3, the end of the chapter, where James is describing the wisdom that is from above and that which is from below. My point is this. Brothers and sisters in Christ may be warty, and they may manifest at times gross immaturity. But if these people indeed are the Lord's, there should be and will be fruits of the Spirit that testify in their favor, as in this case. And where the colors are all filled in, in Hebrews chapter 10, it speaks highly in their favor as the real deal. Lack of the same testify against our credibility, though in the last analysis, God will judge for himself who are his and who is not. It is of the utmost importance, the writer is telling them, that they not slack off in their works toward God's name and the service of his saints. 
We desire that each one of you, verse 11, show the same diligence, so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end, that you may not be sluggish, which they are now, but be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. To this end, our author now admonishes them to pick up and maintain that pace, not to grow cold in their love for God, which presently is happening, and in their service to the saints. Now let me go back to the clause at the beginning of verse 10, where the author says, God is not unjust so as to forget your work. An arch principle of biblical revelation is this. You'll find this in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 30. Those who honor me, I will honor, and those who despise me will be lightly esteemed. When the author to Hebrews says, God is not unjust to forget their works in behalf of his name, let us not understand this expression as meaning that God owes them, or us, or anybody, anything. Let us not think that our works in his behalf ever put God in our debt to us, so that he's obliged to repay us. Not at all. That's not the author's intent. What this author means is that our gracious God has declared as a constitutional principle of his universe that he will honor those who honor him. He will do it not because he's obligated to, but simply because in his grace he delights to. And when the author says God is not unjust so as to fail to do that, all that he means is that God is as good as his promises. Their works, the ones he cited, and cites in more detail, specificity in chapter 10, their works as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ appear to mark them as people of faith who honor God, and God will keep them, and in the end he will reward them. So in verse 11 he urges his readers, and by echo, I like to say, urges all of us in Christ to show in the presence the same diligence in the work of the Lord as they have in past times. He appeals to them to break out of their doldrums, to kick in to high gear. Now notice something significant here in terms of spiritual cause and effect. If they will get it in gear, so to speak... That renewed activity will have the effect of reigniting them in full assurance of their Christian hope. That is, it will restore the full measure of their hope in Christ, which had waned somewhat. Folks, hear me. Energy is a great antidote for apathy. Sometimes I'm tired or discouraged a bit, just as you are. By a natural gravity, those conditions lend themselves to lethargy and apathy. You feel like letting up, and so you let up. Now, there is a time for rest, to be sure. But the trouble is, particularly if discouragement is any part of that mix, that letting up and backing off can biodegrade into a lethargic state where we don't resume speed after we've had an appropriate break. As a pastor, there's a dread phrase I hate to hear Christian people use. Well, I think I need to back off for a while. There you are. We're not called to back off. Yes, we're called to get our appropriate rest. We're called to step it up 
So often I have found that backing off is the first step to backing out and kind of going into that mode. I see it happen to older folk. I don't mean deeply old. I mean people who are getting up, you know, 50, 55, that kind of thing. And now they just kind of want to rest. That doesn't mean they want a week of rest or they want to take a month off or kind of a summer off and then come back full force. That's not at all what they mean. They mean, well, I've done it for so many years. I think now it's time to let these young people take over. And now, really, what they want to do is grab their RV. They may not have one, but you get the idea. And I think I want to play out the rest of my life. I just want to take a seat in the church. Yes, you'll take a seat in the church. And to use that old phrase, you'll gradually just become lethargic and you will soak and you will sour. You will develop the same sluggishness that these Hebrews did. And you won't have ears trained. You'll regress. You cannot stand still in the Christian life. You cannot stand still in Christian service, folks, without it taking its toll. I, for example, am an extremely busy person. I literally work seven days a week, nearly all the time. Typically, I work between 84 and 91 hours a week. I've nearly always done that. So, I get tuckered out. And by the way, so does my wife. When I get home, generally, I'm not inclined to do yard work or other house maintenance things that one would normally do. Low energy, however, can turn to lethargy, and lethargy lead to apathy. We've said that. Consequently, a lot of things around my house that need tended to don't always receive the prompt and energetic response they should. But the time comes when, however tired and bummed out I may feel, hey, certain things have to be done. So I summon my energy and I say, come on, Andrews, kick in and kick it up a notch. And then a funny thing happens, which I'm sure you probably experienced as well. In the process of getting after the work, I discover that I get into the work. Kicking in has a great effect in kicking me off. I repeat, energy is a great antidote for apathy, and that's the writer's appeal here. So this principle applies in so many areas of life, and it's so true in the spiritual life as well. Any pastor can tell you that lethargic people tend to become problematic people. Faithful engagement in the work of Christ is a big key to hopeful contentment in the faith. Doulessness feeds faithlessness, which in turn feeds hopelessness. Sometimes you'll hear folks say, "Ah, God does not seem real to me. There may be a lot of reasons for that pathology, but among them, is the fact that we aren't being real with God. Look, friends, if we want God to be real to us, we need to come alive. We need to get re-energized. We need to move out in serving the Lord. Then that full assurance, that bursting hope will revive, and all will seem well again. But if you're not alive to God, hey, don't expect God to seem alive to us. This is in part where things had broken down with these Hebrew Christians, discouraged and depressed, They disengage to some degree. With discouragement comes a measure of disenchantment, and with disenchantment comes disinterestedness in the things of God. Hence, they had sluggish ears for the truth. All of this was self-inflicted. It is a cycle that is very contemporary. And so, folks, examine yourselves. You can go, many are, right where these Hebrew Christians were. 
and the same tonic that was good for them is good for us. Well, thank you, dear friends, for joining us on The Final Word. God bless you, and have a wonderful day. The Final Word is a listener-supported ministry. Should you want to partner with us or want other information about this program, please visit our website at thefinalwordradio.com. Our postal address is The Final Word, 4565 Carmen Drive, Lake Oswego, Oregon, 97035. Our email address is info at thefinalwordradio.com. Our phone number is 503-699-9840. If this program has ministered to you, tell a friend about it. We do solicit your prayers for God's hand upon this outreach. Be sure the word. Be sure the word. Just be sure the word gets in the hand.